Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, I trust that the Lord has been speaking to you and all of us as we've studied through the book of Daniel these summer months and weeks, and we come today to the 10th chapter. Daniel's final vision here in Daniel chapter 10. Really, it's the last section of the book of Daniel, chapters 10 through 12, all speak of this final vision that's given to Daniel. Chapter 10, our text today, introduces the vision. Chapter 11 is the body of the vision, and chapter 12 is the epilogue of the vision. And since I said it's the last vision, that means that others have preceded it. You know that's the case if you've been coming. Chapter 7, Daniel had a vision of four beasts which emerged from a tumultuous sea. And they were uh, really monsters. The first three sort of resembled animals, but the last one was like anything no one had seen. It was this monster with iron teeth and uh, bronze claws. And each of these animals and monsters represented kingdoms. This time of the Gentiles where these four consecutive world empires would come on and dominate the world scene from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece and finally the Romans. And so this vision that he has now really goes beyond the previous visions and it gives more detail in now not only uh, its effect of these empires upon the Jewish people, but on all world civilization and indeed the very end of time. And so we come today to chapter 10. Let's read all 21 verses of Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz, and his body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his eyes and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. And now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. And then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. 
The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. And I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage, be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, may my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. And then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of this, his word. Well, we find the setting in the very first verse of chapter 10. Daniel says it's the third year of Cyrus of Persia. Now you remember that Daniel was taken captive along with a number of other Jewish boys of the nobility. Uh, in that first wave, there were three primary waves of captives who were taken out of Israel, taken to Babylon. And collectively, that 70 year period that began in 605 is known as the Babylonian captivity. Daniel was one of the first to be taken there. And so the third year of Cyrus of Persia would make it about 534 BC. And so this would mean that two years had passed into which the captives had begun to make their way back to Israel. You remember that they came to Babylon in waves and they went back to Israel in waves. In chapter nine, Daniel had been reading the book of Jeremiah and he was reminded that God had promised Jeremiah that the captivity was to last seven years. And so Daniel began to fast and to pray that God would keep his promise. And of course, God always keeps his promise. And though the kings and kingdoms came and went, started with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and uh, then his descendant, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, of course, was overthrown by the Medo-Persians and Darius the Mede ascended the throne. And by this time, this man Cyrus the Great is the unquestioned ruler of the Persian Empire. And he issues a decree and says, you all can go back to Israel. In fact, Cyrus is known in the Bible as a great deliverer and a friend of the nation of Israel. And so they, they began to organize a little bit. And a man by the name of Zerubbabel uh, led a group of about 50,000 Jewish people from Babylon back to Jerusalem for the express purpose of cleaning up the temple and reestablishing um, the sacrificial system. They even elected a high priest, a man by the name of Joshua. But two years have passed and word certainly must have gotten back, back to Daniel by now that um, the work had stopped. At first it went very well. But remember that they were opposed as the angel said they would be in chapter nine and the people lost heart. And for a 15 year period, no work was done in Jerusalem. And I think that's why Daniel had such a great internal burden. And there is a great internal burden. And 
leading the Lord's people. Look at verse 2. It says, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. This is Daniel's internal burden. Now, Daniel was an old man, well into his 80s. And one of your first thoughts might be, well, if Cyrus said the people can go back to Jerusalem, why didn't Daniel go? Well, there are a couple of possibilities why Daniel's still in Babylon. One is because of his age and physical condition, maybe he felt he was too weak. He would not make the journey. That's a real possibility. But it may be also that Daniel, because of his elevated status within the government, felt like the best place where he could be of the most use to his people was in, in Babylon, where he could be their intercessor rather than their leader. What we do know, because the Bible doesn't say, by the way, why Daniel stayed in Babylon, what we do know is that he, to the day he died, carried a great burden for the people of God. Now, this reminds me of a number of other biblical characters. In the New Testament, we find the Apostle Paul, who loved his Jewish brethren. In fact, he said, brethren, my prayer, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they would be saved. I think, of course, of the Lord Jesus, when he looked out over the city of Jerusalem, occupied by millions of people, the vast majority of whom rejected their Messiah, cried out to God, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How many times I would have gathered you as a mother hen does her brood, but you would not. And that tells me something important. You cannot have the heart of God for his people and be emotionally neutral about lostness. Let me say it again. You cannot have the heart of God for his people and be emotionally neutral about lostness. It should grieve all of us that even in our own nation, the vast majority of our population does not serve the Lord. Daniel was not emotionally neutral about that situation. He was incredibly moved by it. And so he begins to weep, cry out to God. I take very literally. And because he was so brokenhearted, he could not and he would not eat. The Bible says he didn't eat any tasty food. That means the dainties of the court. Remember, he was a, a high official. He could have anything to eat he wanted, but he denied himself. And it was not just that he ate only staples. It says he also did not eat meat or, or wine in his mouth. I take it to be a complete fast for three weeks. And it was the time and timing of the fast that's really so important here. He declares it to be the time of the Passover. And so through the Passover, which was a time of celebration, where they looked back in time and saw how Jehovah God led their ancestors out of Egyptian slavery and brought them through the promise, through the wilderness and into the promised land. And every Jewish person feasted during the Passover, but not Daniel. He fasted while everyone else was feasting. He, he devoted himself, I take it, to intercessory prayer and to isolation. Now, where do I get that? He says, because he didn't anoint himself through that entire three-week period. That means with perfume and cologne. In those days in the Middle East, they didn't have hot running water at their disposal like we do. They didn't bathe three times a day like some of us do. And so if they were going out in public, they've been invited to a social gathering. They anointed themselves with perfume. And so I take from that that Daniel said, I'm going to withhold entertainment. I'm not going to socialize. I'm not going to any dinner parties so that I can devote myself to prayer. Now, 
whatever it means, it certainly means this, that Daniel took the task of intercession very seriously. It's not something he did on a whim. It's something that occupied his heart and mind for long periods of time. Because of that, God graciously responded. Look at verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of, of Euphaz. His response comes in the form of a heavenly messenger, just as it did in chapter 9. Remember in chapter 9, though, that the angel showed up instantaneously, even before Daniel said amen to his prayer. God had sent Gabriel to answer his prayer. But in this case, this unnamed angel is described in very vivid detail. Daniel described him as one who was dressed in linen, that is, covered in all white. He had a belt made out of purest gold. His body was like beryl, which is crystal. One form of beryl is emerald. His face was like lightning. It was hard to look at. It was so bright. His eyes were like fire. His arms and feet like polished bronze. And even his voice was unique. It sounded like a lot of voices at once. Now, there have been a lot of speculation as to whom this angel might be. But here's what we know, putting all this description together, it is obviously not a human being. It's not anything Daniel had ever seen before. It was not a man, it was not a woman. This certainly was a heavenly messenger. Now we humans, and Daniel's no different, had a hard time relating to the spiritual realm. Most folks you and I live around have a hard time even believing there is a spiritual realm. I think the reason primarily is that we are, as humans, basically sensual creatures. What I mean by that is we humans are limited most times to what our senses can communicate about our surroundings. What we can see and hear and smell and taste and touch, that's what we believe is reality. And many of us believe that's the only reality. But the Bible indicates that there is an entirely different realm a different kind of existence that is spiritually discerned rather than sensually discerned. And it is just as real as the room we're sitting in today. And I could show you many places in the Bible where the spiritual realm and the physical realm collide. I think of the man Job, who the Bible describes as a righteous and devout man. God said to Satan, look at old Job there. He esteemed him just as he did Daniel. And Satan said, well, there, there's no secret why Job worships you. You've made his life so good. Take away some of these blessings and he'll curse you to his face. So God allowed Satan to take away Job's health, his family, his income. And yet Job refused to blaspheme and curse God. In fact, he said in summary, shall we accept good and not evil from the Lord? I think of the prophet Isaiah who had that vision of the Lord exalted, sitting on his throne in his temple. His robes filled the temple and there were angels hovering all about him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I think of the Lord Jesus as he communicated with and cast out many demons as recorded in the New Testament. I think about his wilderness experience where he spoke with Satan and was tempted three times to sin. I think one of my favorite Bible stories I'd like you to look at with me this morning is 2 Kings chapter 6. Let's turn there towards the front of your Bible. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, we have a story 
about the prophet Elisha. You remember that Elisha succeeded Elijah. Elisha was a little bit nervous about filling those great prophetic shoes. And so he told the Lord, unless you give me a double portion of Elijah's spirit, I can't do this job. And God graciously answered his prayer. And so there was war between the nation of Israel and their enemies, the Arameans. And God was supernaturally communicating to the prophet Elijah, Elisha rather, the battle plans of the Arameans. And so they were always one step ahead and it was frustrating the king of Aram. So let's come now to verse 8, 2 Kings 6. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel and he counseled with his servants saying, in such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel saying, beware that you do not pass this place for the Arameans are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. And now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? <laughs> he says, there's a mole in the camp. There's got to be a spy that's communicating our positions to the Israelites. And they said, uh, oh, oh no, my king. Verse 12, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and take him. And it was told him saying, behold, he's in Dothan. And he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God, that's Elisha's servant, had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. Get the picture. The servant goes out about daybreak to get the uh, Dallas Morning News off the driveway and uh, there's an army, chariots and horses circling the village. And so he goes back inside and obviously he's concerned and Elisha sees the concern all over his face. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he answered, Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, I imagine this uh, servant was not very well educated, but he could count to two. And he said, one, two. And he looks out the window and there's hundreds, if not thousands. And he says, you just told me that those who are for us are more than those who are for them. And Elisha says, that's right. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Sometimes on rare occasions, God allows his people to catch a little glimpse of glory bright, doesn't he? Think of Moses who wanted to see God face to face and God graciously took him on the mountain and set him in the cleft of the rock and in some visible manifestation caused his glory to pass by. And because he wanted to protect Moses, he knew if Moses saw him in his full glory, he'd evaporate. He sets him in the cleft of the rock and Moses saw, as it were, the Bible says, the hinder parts of God. He got just a little glimpse and it was enough to cause his face to glow for days. I think of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, who went with him on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And they saw Jesus peel back his flesh just a little bit to show them who he really was. But the point is that that spiritual realm is all around us. And one day all of us will have eyes to see it. And Daniel got a little glimpse here in chapter 10 into God's heavenly realm. The reason that he did was not to cause him fear, it was to give him encouragement. Look at verse 10, this angelic encouragement. Then behold, a hand touched me. Remember, Daniel does what we would have done. He went down on his face. The blood rushed out. He was lightheaded, could barely breathe. But God's merciful, isn't he? Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Couldn't stand up all the way yet. He just kind of started that way. He's trembling. Probably one of the most famous gospel songs written in the 20th century is called, He Touched Me. And it speaks of Jesus. And though he walked and talked among men with communicable diseases like leprosy, often could be found touching people. There's something special about the human touch, isn't there? I think one of the reasons this COVID lockdown has been so hard on us is we can't hug each other. We can't embrace and we can't have that closeness that we once did that can only be communicated with the human touch. And, and so this angel touches him not to strike him down, but to encourage his heart. Verse 11, he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem. That's the second time in two chapters that an angel has said, Daniel, you are esteemed in heaven. We saw last week, of course, Daniel was esteemed on earth. He was wise and generous and kind. Everyone looked up to Daniel, but he says, you are esteemed in heaven. But we said that the way to be esteemed in heaven is different than on earth because we don't have anything to offer God. We can't impress him with our bank account, our diplomas or our achievements. And so the only way to be esteemed in heaven is to be obedient, to be faithful servant. And Daniel obviously was. He says, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright for I've now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. You remember the first vision that Daniel had involving an angel was answered immediately. Gabriel showed up before he said amen. But in this case, he's been praying for three weeks and heaven seems to have been silent. And now he explains the three weeks of silence, verse 13. But he says, I was sent the second you started praying, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Now, who is the prince of the kingdom of Persia? It's not Cyrus. It's not some human being at all. I, I take it to be the, a demon, some spiritual being represented this na nation of Persia, this region. He was withstanding me for 21 days, the exact amount of time that Daniel had been praying. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, this is another angel, came to help me for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days for the vision pertains to the days of the future. This is angelic encouragement. Our reflex response when we catch that little glimpse of the spiritual realm seems to be fear rather than joy. 
We see this a number of places in the Bible. Again, Isaiah, when he saw the high, saw the Lord high and lifted up, the angels hovering around singing, holy, holy, holy. He didn't rejoice. He didn't celebrate. He did what Daniel did. He went down in fear. He began to grovel and say, woe is me, for I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and, and I have unclean lips. I, the Apostle Paul, on his way to persecute Christians on the Damascus Road, when he saw the risen Lord Jesus in all of His glory, was blinded, went down into the dust. I'm thinking of Luke chapter 2, when those heavenly messengers came to those shepherds abiding in their field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. What was the first thing out of the angel's mouth? Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. Why did he have to say fear not? Because he saw it in their faces. They were afraid, and you would be too, and I would be too. And God often did something tangible to put the person being communicated to at ease. In Isaiah's case, he had one of the angels come and take a coal from the altar and touch his lips to say, you've been forgiven of your unclean lips. In the case of the Apostle Paul, he sent a messenger and his eyesight was restored and he started on that path of discipleship. In the case of the shepherds, he gave them indeed the greatest news of all time that the Messiah had been born. These, these calmed their fears. And this angel here in chapter 10 says something very similar to Daniel that the angel said to the shepherds in Luke 2. Look again at verse 12. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. Because Daniel was afraid. He says, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to explain the meaning of the end times to you. The reason that Daniel's prayers were delayed in their answering is that just as there is turmoil and resistance to God's message in this physical realm in which we live, there is turmoil and outright warfare in the spiritual realm in which the angel lived. And Satan mustered his resources to prevent as well as he could this message getting to Daniel because he knew Daniel was going to get it to us. And he knew that every believer who would read it after he wrote it down would be encouraged to serve the Lord and to trust His sovereignty. And that's the last thing Satan wants to happen. And so that brings us finally to verse 13 of this spiritual warfare. What is the nature of this warfare? Well, we, we know a little bit about warfare. Some of you are veterans. Some of you served and fought and we've all observed it. We've all read about it. We know for there to be warfare, there have to be combatants. And in spiritual warfare, there are two groups of combatants. One is uh, faithful angels, servants of Jehovah. The Bible calls them the heavenly host. The Bible says they are innumerable. There's so many, no man could count them. And they are opposed by the fallen angels under the authority of Lucifer, Satan, who is our adversary and our enemy who is seeking to destroy us, Peter says. He's against God and God's people and all things that God loves. And so most people in our culture have some sort of understanding uh, of the battle that's going on between Satan and God. But there's a, two primary fundamental misunderstandings, I think, as it relates to Satan and, and this battle that's going on. And we Christians know this, but we need to remind ourselves often that Satan is not omnipotent, is he? Our God is. He's all powerful. Satan is limited. 
He is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once as our God is and can be. And so really the ultimate victor in this battle has never been in question. And God says he wins, doesn't he? And Satan is a defeated foe, but he's fighting this guerrilla warfare until the time comes when God ultimately chains him and cast he and the demons into the hell that was created for him. And that's another thing. Don't get your eschatology from movies. Get it from the Bible. A lot of people think that Satan is the king of hell and he created it and he's running the show. But hell was created for the devil to be punished eternally. He's not the king. He is the God of this age. Don't, and that's the other misunderstanding. One is to overestimate Satan and give him too much credit. But I think a greater problem in the church is that we underestimate Satan. We get our information about Satan from the cartoons. And he loves that, I think. He wants us to think of him as this harmless mythological creature. Satan is real and he's powerful and do not underestimate him. He opposes God's purposes and therefore he opposes God's people. And the Apostle Paul understood that Satan is not some harmless cartoon character. He is the enemy. And so in the book of Ephesians, let's turn there quickly. Ephesians chapter 6, as he's written this incredible theological treatise, this letter to the church at Ephesus. As we've often said, the first three chapters are so full of theology. It tells us who we are in Christ. And the last three chapters are incredibly practical, ranging everything from marriage to child-parent relationships to employee-employee relationships. But when Paul comes to the end of the letter, he summarizes it by reminding the people that they are in a war. And it's a spiritual war. And it's fought on spiritual ground. And so this is what he says, Ephesians 6, 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces. Note that all those words are plural. Satan has at his disposal incredible resources that he brings to bear against the church. But he says these forces of wickedness are in the heavenly places, that spiritual realm that we don't see with physical eyes. Because of this, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. You know what Paul say? He's saying God has provided everything you need to win this battle every day. The helmet of salvation, if you're born again, you have that assurance of salvation, you can run through a troop, can't you? Put on that shield of faith. Satan is shooting fiery darts at you every day, but you can extinguish every one of them through faith. You have that uh, belt 
You have it girt tight. You're ready to move and be nimble. You have that feet which can stand on firm ground, those hobnail boots that you can dig in your heels and stand on even uneven ground. Why? Because the Lord is with you. He's provided everything you need. His spirit is within you. And he's given you one offensive weapon. What is it? The sword of the spirit is the word of God. And so in short, I said last week that the secret to Daniel's 70 year ministry is that he was devoted to two things and two things only. Do you remember what they were? The word and prayer. That's what Paul says here. Having put on the armor of God, devote yourself to prayer and use of that one offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Got a secret for you. That's how the Lord Jesus defeated Satan in his wilderness experience. He was hungry. He had fasted for 40 days. Satan tempted him on three occasions. And on every occasion, having spent that time, I believe, in prayer, he quoted the Word of God. And friends, let me say the most obvious truth in the world. If it was good enough for Daniel, it's good enough for us. And if it's good enough for the Lord Jesus, more importantly, it's good enough for us. We are in a battle every day of our lives. And I think Satan would be very happy for us to sit on the sidelines and not even recognize the battles going on. But when we're in the battle, Paul wants us to know that we fight this battle on our knees. That's why he says our battle is not against flesh and blood. Let me put a little finer point on that, Christian. Your battle is not against Planned Parenthood. Your battle is not against some political party. Your, your battle is not against some organization or even individual that is particularly blasphemous. Those organizations that I just mentioned and those individuals that I just mentioned are really just under the authority of Satan. He is the one who's really controlling things behind the scene. That's true today. It was true 2,500 years ago in the day of Daniel. That's what the angel is saying to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel, there, there is a battle going on in a realm that you don't normally see with your eyes and it is raging. But here's the good news, Daniel. Stand on your feet. We win. That's what all of eschatology is about. Whether it's the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, it is to encourage the saints. And next week when you come back, we're going to get into the, the guts of this vision in chapter 11 and like someone told me this week about what we're experiencing in our country, cheer up. It gets worse. <laughs> and it gets really bad in chapter 11. But hold on because chapter 12 is coming. And hold on, Christian, because joy is coming. In the end, God shows himself to be perfectly sovereign. All of human history is playing out according to his plan. And in the very end, we win. Let's thank the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We need encouragement, Lord. I do. We carry burdens just as Daniel did for his people. And if we don't, we're not living right because we know the Lord Jesus carried great burdens for the lostness all around him. So Father, if there's some here and, and they're carefree, even in the midst of a lost and dying world, if they're born again, Lord, would you burden their heart? as you did the Apostle Paul, as you did Daniel for his people. Drive us to our knees, Lord, that we call out to you for mercy because we know you're merciful. 
Father, I thank you for the example of Daniel, though he was fearful as we often are. You encouraged him, you touched him, Lord. You spoke words, you showed him how it's gonna end. And Father, I pray that that would be the cumulative effect of these 13 weeks in Daniel, that your people, Christians here at First Baptist Church of Keller would be emboldened, even in the face of suffering, to serve you until the end. Lord, we know how it turns out. The victory is not in question. Satan is not going to win in the end, you are. But until then, it's gonna be a battle, it's gonna be hard. And so Father, I pray if there are Christians who are on the sideline and they don't really seem like the battle's even something to be concerned about, would you open their eyes just as you did Elisha's servant? Would you show them that there's warfare going on, Father, and they need to be in it? God has given them everything that is necessary for them to be successful. And Lord, it may be that there are some in this room who've never taken on the helmet of salvation. They're not in a battle because they're on the wrong side yet. So Father, I pray by your spirit, you'd open blind eyes today that they would see their need of a savior. And I pray that by your spirit, you'd grant faith and repentance to the lost here today. Encourage the saints, save the lost is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.